The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome, everyone. My name is Daniel Fass. I'm a professor in sociology in the Department of Sociology here at Trinity College Dublin, and I lead the Identities in Transformation research theme. Uh, this is one of five research themes based in the Trinity Long Room Hub, and our flagship lecture series is the Trinity and the Changing City uh, lecture series, which has been running for the past three years. And we've had a really fascinating um, uh, range of topics dealing with um, uh, Trinity and its location within Dublin and within the wider nation state of, and of course Europe and, and, and the world and its interconnections. And we looked at topics like housing, migration, um, social class and education, uh, transport, food sharing and sustainability, languages to name but a few. And, to, and tonight we'll, we'll look at religion and I'll talk about that in, in, in just a second. Um, you can actually follow us uh, uh, if you want to watch back any of the events on the Trinity and the Changing City playlist on SoundCloud if you uh, search for it. Uh, there'll be all, all the previous events. There have been 13. This is the 14th tonight. Uh, and you can watch them, uh, listen back to them, to them all if you're interested. A few house rules next. Um, you can submit questions in the Q&A uh, function that you see on your screen. It's there on the bottom, uh, uh, in the middle on the bottom there, a Q&A. That's where you submit the questions, please. And please uh, go ahead and submit as many questions as you like. And we try to answer them once the speakers have uh, uh, finished with their uh, short inputs. Uh, the, the other piece of information, just to remind you that the event is being recorded and we live stream it on Facebook at the moment as well. And as I said, uh, it will be deposited on SoundCloud where you can listen back to it at any point in time in, in the future as well. And uh, please, if you're on social media, please do join us on uh, Twitter using the uh, TLR hub uh, hashtag. So now I'd like to uh, introduce uh, our um, chair for tonight's session, Alexandra Grieser, and she works as an assistant professor for the theory of religion at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, Alexandra specializes in religious pluralism and European pluralism, religious and secular worldviews, in the changing role of religion in modernity and in the field of religion and media. She's the co-founder of an international research network on the innovative approach of an aesthetics of religion, which looks at religion not only as beliefs and doctrines, but as an embodied way of sensing and perceiving the world. She has written um, on changing attitudes towards death and immortality and modernity, and has established a sensory approach in the volume on the aesthetics of religion, a connective concept. Her most recent work is uh, on how to understand Europe's religious history in a pluralistic way, and how different modes of knowledge are competing established or threatened in the field of religion, science, and art. She's currently the president of the Irish Society for the Academic Study of Religions and the managing editor of the book series of the International Association for the History of Religions, uh, entitled the, the Study of Religion in a Global Context. And tonight our topic will be religion on the move, forming identities in a changing society. So this is really, a, 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 I'm really gonna look forward to this fascinating topic. So I'll hand over to Alexandra, who in turn will then briefly introduce our distinguished panel for tonight. Over to you, Alexandra. 
Thank you so much, Daniel. And Daniel could easily be on the panel because of his excellent research on religion, migration, and in the educational uh, 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 situation in Ireland. Uh, so pity we only have four speakers, but a warm welcome, first of all, to everyone who could make it tonight, especially to our four speakers um, who instantly said yes, um, when I asked them and invited them, even when I said you will have just a few minutes to give a spotlight on, on your work and your experience. So um, give me a few moments to introduce first the topic of tonight, um, a little bit of a, a background here, and then uh, introduce all at once uh, the, the four speakers, and then we look forward to hear from, from you. Talking about religion and migration nowadays might call up inner images. Yeah, we all share of people walking alongside European motorways, but whether we like it or not, also stereotypes that skin color is linked to certain religions and to conflictive situations. However, the topic of religion and migration is when we look back into history is a far bigger one religions as communities of people, but also as what we call systems of meaning making are related to migration in many, many ways. The history of Judaism, just as one example, is one long story about being forced into exile and coming home again, losing the center and becoming a transnational community in the diaspora. The USA, cannot be understood without those early migrants uh, who went to the new world, um, leaving Europe because of their religions not being accepted. And I don't need to tell people in Ireland about migration and religion in relation to the history of the USA. Surprisingly, research on migration to Europe has very long ignored religion as a factor. This is in itself a really interesting topic assuming that people who came to Europe, uh, like in the 60s or so, would go home again, and that the world re would remain um, separated into East and West as a stable pattern, which is not the case, what we see at the moment. So this has changed massively. We have uh, wonderful research uh, developing at the moment, especially from the countries which see themselves as very secular, Sweden, for example, the Netherlands. But um, doing research on this topic presents a twofold challenge. Religion is often both overemphasized and underemphasized. It may be seen as the sole reason for problems and conflicts, or religious involvement in conflicts is denied because real religion would be seen as free from politics or even being misused by worldly interests. So, on the one hand, it is important not to religionize migrants or migration. Migrants and their ways of being religious are as diverse as the attitudes uh, in European countries are. And religion is often rather part of the politicized discourse than it is really a problem in the daily life of people in, the, in their neighborhoods or they differ from each other. On the, on the other hand, however, we want to understand the fact of religion and we want to understand it as both a resource for people to process change, but also as a potential amplifier of conflictive situations. So 
To be sure, there are things to be talked about. The question is how this can be done and what competences society needs to be able to talk. So tonight we have four people with us who will help us to shed different light on the relationship between religion and migration and will help us to widen the horizon through sharing their work and their experience. So first there is Peter Breinlein. He has done extensive field work on cultures of pain and a Christian ritual that connects Europe and the Philippines. He was the curator of the University Museum of Religions in Marburg, Germany, and he specializes in questions of religion and media, expositions, and the uncertainty of modernity. So he is a pioneer of the aesthetic material turn in the study of religion, and he covers both the, uh, the, the approach from anthropology and from the study of religion, which is a, a, an exciting thing to have. Um, for our evening, he is he would speak about the project, the materiality of forced migration in Göttingen, where he explores migration through the lens of things that people carry, lose or find. The second speaker is Gizem Arikan. She is a political scientist at Trinity College. She worked and studied in Turkey and in the USA published in renowned journals and is the winner of numerous awards. She's interested in the link between the religiosity of people and how it is linked to the political attitudes, especially attitudes towards democracy. What I find extremely interesting is she applies a comparative approach to this question and combines the bird's eye view of political science with the methods of psychology. For us tonight, I found extremely interesting um, that she is able to switch the perspective, not only looking at the religiosity of, of migrants, but also looking at the, what we could call intaking uh, societies and how the mechanisms work that political attitudes and religiosity uh, a kind of impact on each other on both sides. I met Rory O'Neill as the integration projects manager of the Irish Refugee Council. This is a, a situation where I think you experience things from so many perspectives that I was very curious uh, um, to, and eager to get him here on the panel. And the second reason uh, I thought he is a, an ideal uh, a panelist for our evening is that he's at the same time an anthropologist and a photographer. And I'm sure that if you are both kind of uh, having the artist, artistic uh, perspective and the professional observational perspective, you can't help to think about what you experience. So we are happy to hear about this kind of uh, uh, interlaced way of dealing with your many experiences you surely have. And last but certainly not least is Sadwinder Singh. He is not only part of the Sikh community in Dublin and will share a few experiences as in, in his role as being a, a, a migrant in Dublin, but he is also a researcher and he has worked on the history uh, and the development of the Sikh community. So we have somebody who again shares experiences with a reflection and um, 
uh, with a degree from the Dublin Institute of Technology, uh, he brings in an analysis of different strategies and uh, ways of how uh, migrants cope with the situation of finding uh, a new home and uh, uh, adaptation strategies to the new society they are finding themselves in. Without further ado, I will hand over to Peter Breunlein. The floor is yours. Thank you, Alexandra. Hello and a very good evening to all. Uh, I'm delighted about Alexandra's invitation and about her initiative for this meeting. We are talking about religion on the move and I would like to contribute with a little story on this topic. For some time now, I'm have been, I've been working on a research project entitled The Materiality of Forced Migration. Our team is researching migration with a special view on things. In fact, we want to make an innovative contribution to migration research with this perspective, hence the title, The Materiality of Forced Migration. Some of our team members conducted interviews with refugees who came to Germany and talked to them about things they had to leave behind at home, things that were essential for their survival during their flight, things that hold memories, things they hope for in their new lives. We don't do research on religion specifically, but whenever you do migration research, religion is involved. The following story recorded by my colleague Katharina Brunner reflects this. It is the story of a prayer book. And now I would uh, like to have the slide. Yes, sir. thank you. Don't be fooled by the picture on the slide. The prayer book is very small. It measures about four to three centimeters and is made of a light colored leather material. On the front of the book is the writing Subhan Allah, which can be translated roughly as glory to God. On the back is the lettering Muhammad, the name of God's envoy and prophet. The lettering is green and artistically rendered in green ornaments. In contrast to this artistic design, the small book is very marked by Mons's flight story, has tears and appears softened in some places. The pages of the prayer book are held together by a large stable. The book itself contains a collection of particularly central surahs of the Quran. Of these, the, surah, uh, the surahs Anas, Al-Ikhlas and Al-Falak have become the most significant for Monza. The surahs Anas and Al-Falak are supposed to protect against evil internal and external influences while the short Surah Al-Ikhlas is said to have a special protective function. The prayer book was given to Mansa by a woman on the street in Homs, Syria. At this point, the prayer book is not a special object for Mansa. 
the woman or the passers-by who receive it. Rather, the books are handed out to passers-by like informational material. Many people do not even pay attention to the woman or the books, and some accept them, but do not glance at them or carelessly, carelessly put them in their pockets. The Breyer books are indistinguishable from each other at this point and have the same value. Monza accepts, uh, accepts a prayer book from the woman and has carried it in his wallet ever since. First to his law exams in Syria and later during his flight to Germany. He describes it as a protection that has helped him through any difficult situation. During his flight in Egypt, Monza regularly re re reads the surahs of the prayer book and prays five times a day. This changes when he flees across the Mediterranean Sea via a collection point from Alexandria with another 300 people on an inflatable boat. On the boat, Monza refrains from reading the surahs of the prayer book. The risk of the book being soaked or lost is too great. To maintain a connection to the surahs and contents, Monza quietly recites supplications. In these moments, Monza said, Allah is beside him, providing support for the rest of his days on the boat. Without the prayer book and the recitation of supplications, Monza is certain he would not have survived the flight to Italy. For Monza, a mass commodity produced in large numbers and distributed indiscriminately among the passers-by in Homs has become a special object, which for him has no comparable value, for example, to the other prayer books distributed. Things like people have biographies. The biography of Monza and the biography of prayer book crossed and connected. The prayer book is no longer in its original sphere of exchange in which it could have been exchanged for comparable objects, but has a special value due to the shared experiences on Monza's flight. It has become an inalienable object. This is also the reason why Monza still carries the prayer book in his wallet as a constant companion. Also, he no longer recites the supplications as he did on the rubber dinghy. He still benefits from the book's protective power. He is firmly convinced that it still protects him from all the dangers that life throws at him. We learn from the story that religion is not something abstract based only on beliefs and norms. As a rule, religion needs things to be lived. Religion is basically material religion. We learn that religion offers protection in times of crisis, but also that practiced religion is not unchangeable. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. This is really impressive that you could say so much even in, in a fewer minutes. And I think this is 
a wonderful um, illustration of our concept from the zooming in um, into the biography of an object and one person now uh, transferring to the bigger picture and the mechanisms that work between people, individuals and society. Gizem, the floor is Thank yours. You. Thank you, Alexandra. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my talk tonight, as Alexandra has mentioned, uh, shifts the discussion from migrating people to the societies uh, where, they, where they arrive. And I would like to talk about the role of religion in host migrant interactions and um, the attitudes of the host society towards immigrants. I would like to highlight the double-edged nature of religion in shaping these relations and dynamics and also address whether religion can be a source of acceptance and inclusion. But let me set the stage um, with a few examples. First of all, in the European context, we are very familiar with anti-immigrant messages, with um, anti-immigrant messages uh, emphasizing uh, migrants' religiosity and uh, uh, making references to the religious identity of immigrants. And in the past few years, Islam has uh, been on the uh, uh, spotlight. In Europe, nearly every major right-wing populist party emphasizes cultural and religious objections to Muslim migration. And in their election campaigns, we often see Islam being portrayed as an anti-Western, anti-European religion. And public opinion surveys in Europe show increasing opposition to Muslim migrants who are perceived uh, to be a national identity um, and, and cultural identity threats. Apologies, so apologies for interrupting you, just that you need to pop it onto presentation. Thank you. Okay, sorry. Uh, okay, so on the one hand, we see religious identities being an important component of anti-migrant uh, xenophobic sentiment. But on the other hand, we see religious groups, organizations, and leaders taking active role in welcoming and providing support and assistance to migrants and refugees of different religious convictions and showing acts of kindness and solidarity. And perhaps one of the most um, of, of these examples is seen in this photo from uh, 2016. The photo shows Pope Francis performing a ceremonial washing of the feet of uh, Muslim, Christian, and Hindu refugees to highlight the need for the international community to approach refugees with kindness and humility. Uh, and there are, of course, many other examples. So for instance, four years ago, when large groups of Syrian refugees arrived in Germany, uh, churches and religious leaders have joined local officials to welcome them at the train stations that they arrived. The representatives of Catholic and Protestant churches were also among the first to welcome migrants. And uh, in their messages, they constantly uh, emphasized uh, that care for the other is central to Christianity. So what explains this puzzle? Let me just stop share for the moment. And uh, so, so why is religion associated with anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant sentiment in some instances and with welcoming attitudes towards migrants in some other instances? So for many years, my colleagues and I have been trying to find answers to this and similar questions. 
And we believe uh, we, we had some answers that shed light into uh, these type of questions. The, the key to solving the puzzle is this. Um, religion, religiosity cannot be reduced to a simple question of whether a person believes in a certain doctrine or performs certain rituals or prays. It is a rich social and personal experience involving multiple components. And while some components of the religious experience may be associated with anti-immigration sentiment, some components can be a source of welcoming attitudes. So let me explain the most prominent uh, components that we find to be relevant in the religion and migration debate. The, the, the first component, the very first component is identity. So among other things, religion provides individuals with a group identity. Uh, this is a sense of attachment to a group that shares common characteristics. So this religious identity is beyond adhering to a religion. So this is not just about adherence to Catholic or Islamic principles. This is about whether people have a sense of belonging to a religious group, whether they have, um, they, they feel part of a religious community that they have something in common. And these social identities provide individuals with a sense of belonging. They help define who we are as individuals and our sense of self-birth. So social identities such as religious identity have a lot of positive effects. Among many other things, they provide individuals with security, assurance, a sense of belonging to a wider community and a feeling of common faith and solidarity with that community. But identities also have a negative side. And this is because group identities sometimes also act as boundaries. They define who is us and who is them. They define who is similar to us and is therefore acceptable and who is different than us and potentially threatening. So they define who is from our team, who is from our group and who remains on the other side. And it's this identity component of religiosity that we find to be crucial in fueling anti-immigrant sentiment. But I have to note, and it's very important to note, that religious identities tend to fuel these anti-immigrant sentiments when immigrants are perceived to be dis, uh, dissimilar in religion, beliefs, and values to the host society members. A second component that we identify as being important in this debate is religious beliefs. So of course, religion is a rich social and individual experience, and it is more than just about defending our group identities and group culture. So religious beliefs are another component of the religious experience. And what I mean by religious beliefs is the fundamental beliefs, values, and symbols associated with uh, the religion an individual adheres to. And major religious traditions all have many things in common. And one of the commonalities is messages about treating others with respect, empathy, and humility. Almost all religious texts emphasize the responsibilities of the believers towards fellow human beings, and they promote benevolence. We often see as 
in the examples that I presented at the beginning, religious leaders often preaching, caring for others and um, encouraging their followers to treat others with respect and empathy. So religious believers often internalize values like solidarity and religious compassion, which we find also extends to attitudes towards immigrants. And in fact, our studies show that when this compassion element of religiosity is salient, when individuals are reminded of uh, the value of religious compassion, uh, they actually tend to uh, find immigrants uh, of different religions as more socially acceptable. So it is this identity belief distinction that explains how religion can both flame hostilities and serve as a tool for acceptance and inclusion. And while our identities may divide us and compassion and communality uh, could play a united role, there is a very important point that I would like to emphasize before closing. So the important thing is that religious identities are harmful only to the extent that other groups are perceived to be dissimilar and threatening. How religious groups and identities are presented in the public debate, in the public discussion matters a lot. An emphasis on differences in religious identities or religious value systems often undermine the social acceptance of immigrants by further highlighting group differences. And political and religious leadership and organizations have the capacity to influence the way uh, host societies react to immigrants uh, with their messages. However, relaying messages about compassion and solidarity are not going to be enough either. So uh, leadership organizations and groups working in these areas must also emphasize that immigrant communities uh, share uh, a lot of common things uh, to the host society members. So on that relatively positively note, uh, let me hand over to Alexandra. Thank you so much, Gizem. I think this added so many components to the jigsaw puzzle, and I can see connections already to what I suppose uh, our following speakers, next speakers, will refer to. Rory, let's talk empirical reality and your observations. And yeah. Thank you, Alexander, and thank you for the invite. Um, <clears throat> So my role with the Irish Refugee Council has provided me with a very privileged position that allows me to engage with a very diverse set of stakeholders. Primarily is the people that I've encountered that have arrived here in Ireland seeking a new life and escaping the persecution they've suffered. And in a lot of cases it is for their religious beliefs or personal beliefs that they've had to flee this persecution. This has opened and engaged and developed my own understanding and curiosity in relation to the diverse set of beliefs, albeit most coming from the Abrahamic religion that people hold and how these systems very much support people, especially at a time of duress. I would like to highlight both the new communities that have arrived here and the receiving communities that seek to welcome and support their new neighbors and also some of the challenges that this encounter engenders. <clears throat> Outside of the people we support in our work, the people who support us are a very diverse set of stakeholders. Many come from a strong faith-based belief system, which encompasses missionary congregations, congregations of particular churches, and individuals whose beliefs behold them to support those that they can. 
This is obviously not to discount those who are driven to support others, not because they come from a structured belief system, but because they want to do good. Many of the NGOs that I work for, like that I work for operate at either local or national or international level, have their origins in the support that was given to them by religious institutions in Ireland, especially congregations that worked overseas and brought their experience back to Ireland and encouraged and facilitated the startup of organizations. NGOs seek to work themselves out of existence by the very work they do, but unfortunately they probably won't. And they exist to fill the gaps that the state failed to provide. The Irish Refugee Council is nearly 30 years in existence and originated as it was seen to be a need to advocate for the rights of a new phenomenon, that of people arriving in Ireland seeking protection from persecution in their country of origin. Previously, the only experience that Ireland had of refugees were those that the state welcomed through relocation and resettlement programmes. Historically, we badly welcomed Hungarians, Vietnamese and people from the Balkans. Closer to home, at the early stage of the Troubles in the North, Catholics from primarily Belfast were relocated to the South and Dundalk, all fleeing conflicts that had their origins in religious persecution. The Refugee Council is a national organisation that works with people who are in the protection process, exiting the system known as direct provision, or have arrived here under family reunification or through the state resettlement programmes. As an organisation, we cover a very diverse range of needs for people from education, employment, housing, youth, advocacy and policy. My role in the organisation has been designing and implementing integration programmes, primarily around the access to employment and housing. The other pathway of integration is education, and that's a big part of our work as well. My background is as a visual anthropologist. This is what paved the path for my role within the Refugee Council. I have spent the last 12 years working with people who've arrived in Ireland seeking protection, originally getting to know this heterogeneous community through making images about their new lives in Ireland, exploring how identity is formed and reformed on the continuing journey that they take to integration, coming from an institutional existence in direct revision to independent living. Working with various missionary religious congregations, faith and interfaith based groups on singular and economical projects has provided me with a privileged insight into how structured or even unstructured congregations exercise the vision and mission of their founders to carry on and develop the charism of their particular congregation they represent. And usually this is to support the most vulnerable within our midst. The relationships that we have developed with various congregations has created a model that allows us access to some of their resources while giving them a vehicle to fulfill their charism especially for many of them with dwindling numbers and an aging profile and the inability to actually carry on their charism themselves. These partnerships create a symbiotic relationship that gives us recourse to develop and expand our supports while allowing the congregations an opportunity to continue to continue the continuum of care that many would have begun on the missions and the work they undertook in some of the jurisdictions that people we work with have come from. Where I've encountered some tensions is where there's a feeling that direct support from a particular group or church is perceived as a form of proselytizing from the donor, ironic when both come under the umbrella of Amrahab belief systems. It's only when both these meet as equals and see each other as people, all with the same hopes and dreams, these tensions abate, and also that there is no hidden agenda at play. New communities that arrive here, whether coming from either a secular or religious background, there's a process of adjustment and integration. 
I would contend that integration is a two-way process and that the host community has a need to understand, listen and learn from their new neighbours and likewise from the other side as well. For many Muslims that have arrived here, the sense of Ireland being a secular space that allows them to publicly profess their faith is very much a positive surprise and one that allows and engenders the integration process in the main to be a positive journey. Again, where I've encountered tensions within the space is where there's an intergeneration and familial relationships where expectations are not met and how the other adheres or performs their religious obligations. Where one becomes more secular than the other or conversely where their faith becomes more important and practiced more than previously would have been done in their homeland. I see it especially with one Muslim friend whose teenage daughter seeks a more secular lifestyle than her moderate parents which from experience, this is the case with most families with teenagers experience in some shape or form. But when it is tied up in expectations of a strong historical belief system, it creates new and unexpected problems. Where there are very positive encounters, the benefits to all communities is in my experience is a very valuable addition to society as a whole and leads to positive social cohesion. An example of this is the Muslim Sisters of Era a group of women who provide food banks that feed between four and 500 people outside the GPO every Friday evening. A community of people that the state are failing are being provided for by a community of people that see it as their moral imperative and a tenet and central pillar to their belief system to help and support those well off than themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Rory. Uh, uh, maybe we have time during the Q&A phase also to talk a little bit of what you were also saying, that you were quite surprised actually that part of your work is, or quite a bit of your work, is working together with faith communities and uh, kind of inter-religious uh, 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 institutions. Um, planning such an evening, and as I said in the beginning, there are also kind of pitfalls when you want to talk about religion and migration. Sadwinda uh, Singh helped me out because this is the thought you have. You don't want to expose anyone and religionize someone and use someone as the picture of the migrant. Now, and Sadwinda uh, did the work already for us. Uh, he, works, he worked on his own community uh, in a reflective way, and we had a lot of fun in preparing this evening together. Sadwinder, I think there are many links for you to con connect to. Thank you, Francisca. Thank you for the for the invite. And uh, I just want to share my screen. So I, uh, when I. Uh, like to think uh, about uh, my own work and my own journey. Uh, I was just thinking that what uh, part religion played in my own journey. Sorry, uh, to, sorry to interrupt. Just to remind you, just to put it into presentation mode for your slides. Is that clear? Perfect. Yeah, just to, when I was uh, reflecting on my work, I just uh, was thinking what uh, part uh, religion played in my own journey. And I was just uh, thinking that religion has been part of my my uh, personality since I was you know a teenager. But this part became more pronounced only after I 
uh, after my arrival in Ireland as an international student uh, with the visible identity some 16 years ago. On one hand, uh, religion provided me with enormous emotional support to deal with rigors of student life. While on the other, it marked me as someone different. And as a result of that, I was subject to a lot of verbal and racial abuse uh, in, in a post 9-11 Islamophobic uh, Irish society. Um, if, I had to, if I have to differentiate uh, between Sikh experience before and after 9-11, I would say that uh, Sikh experience before 9-11 was largely positive. People viewed turban-wearing Sikhs as, as exotic others, as they reminded people of, you know, um, legendary characters of Santa Claus or Aladdin. Uh, as you can see from the one of the respondent was, uh, was saying that he was approached by a child, uh, you know, um, asking for a bicycle. <laughs> so it, that was that was those roles were 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 you know funny. The people people didn't mind to play into those roles. But after 9-11, turban and beard acquired a negative connotation and association with with images of terrorism and turban wearing Sikhs became subject of abuse and hate. And this was very difficult to deal with. Uh, personally, whenever I um, was asked um, that are you Bin Laden or are you Muslim, uh, you wanted to say, no, I'm not Muslim. But at the same time, you had a feeling that you don't want to approve of any uh, negative behavior toward, toward Muslims as well. So in that situation, uh, how do uh, uh, you know, Sikh migrants you know, uh, cope in, in Ireland? One of the response was raising markers of difference. A uh, lot of young Sikhs, especially the students who came after 9-11 took off their turbans and shaved in order to escape abuse. And, and, and uh, a lot of time it did help them to get jobs, accommodations, uh, but not always. As one of my um, uh, participants participant said that when he wore turban, he was called Bin Laden. And when he shaved, the people still called him Paki. So he felt like that he can't really escape abuse, uh, even after taking extreme step of taking his turban off and shaving. Another response was uh, that people tried to um, rebuild uh, the traditions which they have left behind, um, and, you know, and they tried to keep traditions, um, you know, the religion, language, dress, uh, music and martial arts in, in Ireland. And this is where um, the Dublin Gurdwara uh, played a multi-dimensional role in creating a, a, you know, a, what you can call, home away from home. And it's, a, you know, the idea that going to the Gurdwara uh, is like going to your parents' house is, is very, very revealing. Is that, you know, it's a, it's a place of comfort uh, security and unconditional love uh, where people uh, met each other. And uh, in the absence of immediate family, they were able to find a surrogate family 
here in, you know, in the group, in the Gurdwara. And uh, apart from prayers, uh, people shared information about housing, jobs, and every other concern they have as a migrant in Ireland. So uh, the Gurdwara really helped people, the Sikhs uh, who lived in Dublin and around Dublin. But then there are families who lived in countryside uh, on their own, um, uh, largely uh, in, you know, isolated from larger Sikh, uh, larger Sikh community. So they also uh, took to faith, many of them took to faith to, to, you know, to guide their life. Uh, as as wasn't Gail, an athlete, uh, and she's a college lecturer, uh, describes her personal, a broader personal philosophy that Sikhism teaches us to be warrior. So it's easy for me to handle situation in male dominated or white dominated society. So here, quite interestingly, uh, Vachnigal, uh, she's a, a second generation Irish born Sikh, uh, adapts Sikh teachings uh, to guide her life. Um, and despite the fact, you know, in, in um, there's only other Sikh family in, in Galway at that time. And uh, then there was another case uh, of family living in, in Newcastle. And uh, this, uh, the owner of a uh, uh, new turbine, turbine restaurant actually, in, quite interestingly, uh, he himself is a clean shaven Sikh. And uh, in order to compensate his, No pray to say his Sikh prayers. So there, are, there's another case uh, in um, in uh, New in Northern Ireland where uh, a Sikh lady has a joint uh, reading session with her Christian friends, where they jointly read Bible and Guru Granth Sahib, which is Sikh scripture. And so, in a way, they used faith to to build relationship. Uh, with other communities, and uh, and I just this point. So I just to uh, this in the picture. This is Ravinder Singh, uh, the first uh, uh, turban wearing Sikh to join uh, Irish Guard Reserve uh, after a long battle of fourteen years. And uh, his story is kind of sums up Sikh experience here. Um, and all migrants face challenges uh, and problems, but these challenges and uh, problems become more pronounced in case of uh, in case of uh, migrants with visible identity, for example, Sikhs. And um, it also um, uh, uh, kind of explains that uh, these migrants are are willing to. Uh, they know that they have to walk an extra mile. Uh, to keep their keep their religious and cultural heritage while carving out a meaningful uh, way to engage in or contribute in into the Irish society rather than living on the margins of it. Uh, so there is after struggle there is a there is a hope there is a some positive outcome. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Sadvinder. Very diverse insight into the different aspects. And I think, uh, yeah, this situation you described uh, that on the one hand, you, you have to say, wait a minute, I am not a Muslim, but I'm also not, you know, in favor of saying that um, illustrates very well the kind of multi-layered situation in which you um, find yourself as a migrant, identifiable migrant with a certain religious identity. It's great. We have a little bit of time uh, and I, I just go over the questions here and I can see kind of uh, two bigger um, fields, areas um, where people are interested in or rather comment on uh, as well. So I need to kind of get put them together a little bit. We don't have time to read out all the questions, but there is uh, one area where people are interested in that um, has to do with home um, and questions of where home is and how identity formation, which is our topic, right? Um, identity formation, religion, and feeling at home, uh, how how that works. And um, one more or less a comment is saying there are people who don't even know how to, uh, how they can um, uh, organize their way of, of dealing with death uh, and dying because they don't have the facilities. Um, then there is a question directed uh, directly to Setwinder, um, someone from a Pakistani Punjab I was extremely privileged to visit Katapur Sahib. So something is going on here that not everybody knows recently and was moved by the visiting uh, Yatris from Indian Punjab. So the question is, I, I guess, I can't help but wonder if you think migration takes on a, a new facet altogether where devout Sikhs are far away in some cases in third countries from sites and spaces that are integral to their identity, I see a blurring of lines between pilgrimage and migration, travel and devotion. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, and I put that together with, which is nice to see here with questions of Irish identity. That somebody is saying diaspora belongs as a word to the Jewish race, but, and there's no Jewish race, I, I think, but the community, now used by Irish abroad, likewise wandering in the world wilderness, longing for home. How can we explain this longing even after three or four generations of people abroad? Yeah, there is this relationship, which is not necessarily a material one, but uh, also an imaginary one, um, but it turns into. So Sedwinda, do you have kind of a response to this thought about uh, blurring lines and, and the... Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I just explained what Kartarpur Sahib is. Yeah. One of the important religious uh, site where founder of Sikhism, Guru Nanak, spent his last days. Um, uh, and uh, that place was, uh, was in Pakistan. It's just on the border of India and Pakistan. So this is the only two years back, this site was opened. This border was opened. The Sikhs uh, as a community has been longing uh, to have a visit to that place. But it was only after Imran Khan uh, became prime minister. So he opened uh, that uh, place for Sikh pilgrimage. 
so it's very, uh, very, uh, I think, emotional moment for Sikhs all over the world. And uh, to be honest, since Sikhs has been settled all over the world, uh, so they, they, they are travelers in, in a sense, uh, quite a diasporic community. So I, I think they would, uh, the boundaries are definitely all blurred. Um, the children who grew up uh, in, in Western society, they have a different identity uh, than the one who came from Punjab or Indian Sikhs. Um, so uh, uh, it's my comment, I don't know if I... <laughs> yeah, home and not home is not yeah. fixed. Yeah, um, as some, yeah, some people imagine it from their experience. There is a question for Rory, and I'm really interested in, in how you will respond to this. Um, this is about Ireland, um, for an island with devout religious practice, yet abroad, so much humanitarian from Roger Casement to Trocair. You need to explain that to us. Concern, missionaries, as you mentioned. How and why did it get, did we get it so wrong at home with suppression of sexuality and identity? Somebody thinking certainly about the mother and baby home report we were just um, encountering. Rory. Yeah, so Trocra and Goal were organizations that work overseas in aid and development and would have been, well, Goal certainly wasn't founded by religious congregations, but Concern and Trocra would have their origins in that. Um, to, to relate it back to the mother and baby homes and, and the issues with uh, abuse, I, I can't really make that correlation. Like we did get it wrong in that sense, very much so. Um, but we also got it right, I suppose, on the missions. One doesn't negate the other. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be in a position to answer that question. It is an interesting one. And I think um, especially we as colleagues uh, discuss at the moment, how can we study? How can we study the role of religion beyond kind of blaming uh, and shaming uh, questions or just saying, what is the role of the church? This is certainly one thing that uh, many of, of us in Ireland are talking about. But the, the question, and this leads me to the, to the second kind of uh, a field of questions, which I try to group here, is um, how can we understand the role of religion within a culture beyond the question of uh, uh, staunch, staunch believers or whether you are an adherent or not? What are the structures that are uh, created in a society, in a culture by a religious tradition? And this um, is certainly really an important question. How can you bring together, especially with the, with the person who, who put in the question um, has in mind, the link between how we deal with our own bodies and the religious ideals uh, of a culture that goes far beyond, I think, uh, uh, religious scriptures or, or whatever. Now, this is really interesting, and maybe uh, Peter and, and Gizem would like to come in on this here. I have several questions um, which start with quite um, opinionated ideas of what religion is. That is really an interesting one. It seems to me that the example of Peter Breunlein's prayer book is actually more an example of superstition in a talisman than a truly materialized religion. Is religion not more a, li a lived spirituality? Someone else is 
stating religion is the attempt by people of giving meaning to the human experience, your speakers are mixing cultural practice with religion. And then somebody uh, uh, speaks about the, his or yeah, her own experience, truly religious people who understand religion in the sense of Gandhi that all religions are flowers in God's garden, these religious people can get along well with each other and even more so in a migration context where many meet with a similar background. Peter, would you like to have a go? Uh, maybe it's important to distinguish between how we see religion as researchers and well, how people start, yeah. This is a, a really essential question uh, in a way because it separates theologians from uh, the cultural study of religion, let's say. And within the study of religion or the comparative study of religion, um, it's really hard to separate religion and culture. Let's take an example. If someone someone goes into a Catholic church to pray for the health of her child in front of a picture of Mother Mary and then lights a candle. Is that superstition? And what would lift spirituality mean in this case? Um, and can you always separate cultural practices from re religious practices? Irish Catholics for example, venerate certain saints that Filipino Catholics do not know at all. So we have we have cultural tradition which merge with religious traditions, and this is um, always the case, or it becomes visible when we observe um, the history of migration. For example, when Italians. Um, migrated to North America, to the United States, um, there were no um, uh, churches built for the Italians and they used the Irish churches, but they, feared, they, they felt alienated. It was not their Catholicism. And so uh, at that point, the culture comes in, I guess. And um, what, I, my, my personal opinion is that religion always needs um, uh, materiality to be expressed. And in times of crisis, um, such um, material objects are really helpful and can function as um, a way um, out of the crisis as a sort of protection. And um, um, so there's no reason to, to separate superstition uh, objects uh, um, and lift spirituality as I see it. I think that's, that's an important point to make that um, uh, in the study of religion, we see religion as a subsystem of culture. This is not even an, an, an uh, opposition for us. Gizem, would you would you might like to respond to kind of the idea of what is true, what is being truly religious? Uh, 
Thank you. I mean, at, at, at the very basic level, yes, religion is about trying to understand, give meaning uh, to, to, to the human experience, but it often goes much beyond, uh, right, than, than um, trying to understand and explain. And it's so much embedded in our social organizations, social structures, uh, the, these religious beliefs, these ideas about trying that that try to give meaning uh, often influence very heavily the, the cultural norms and values um, of the societies. So it, it usually goes right uh, way beyond that. And in some instances, it, it becomes, um, you know, inseparable from certain things. Um, the, the second point I could comment on uh, very briefly is this um, is, is one of the comments about uh, that makes references to Gandhi. And um, in, in fact, uh, as, as the uh, audience, uh, you know, uh, put it, uh, there, there is really a lot of research in psychology on uh, what kind of motivations, what kind of religious motivations. Uh, can lead to greater levels of tolerance. And it's really about, um, it's when people see religion as an end in itself, uh, that, that uh, religious beliefs uh, are, are very much aligned with tolerance towards uh, others. Uh, so yes, as our audience comments, uh, there is actually evidence to uh, support this. Yeah. we. Uh... What, what we would say about the development of kind of pluralist forms of, of religion, and Gandhi is certainly someone who has promoted this way of dealing with religion in a pluralist way. This connects very well with Sadwinder's uh, uh, results, that this is one strategy yeah, to, to kind of use different spaces, use different religions even, um, that we look at it uh, uh, historically, and at the same time, we are interested in, for example, I use that in class, the, the example, sometimes it's, uh, it's judges who decide what is a religion and what is not a religion. For example, in the, in the case of Scientology, it is a religion in some countries and not a religion in other countries. So we are also interested, I think, supporting what Gizem was just saying, in how institutionalization of religion works and who defines uh, what a really real religion is and what not. We are at the end of, of this one hour. Um, I would like to use Max Weber's saying, uh, who once said, if we want to understand the role of religion, we also need to look at places where we would not expect it to be. <laughs> So maybe this is also a response uh, to that question. And on the other hand, you're absolutely right. Religion has also a, a huge potential of bringing people together. Another sociologist has called this the sacred canopy under which people have a basis on which um, they interact. It remains to thank you, not just for your discipline, but for your wonderful presentations which uh, uh, really gave insight within 10 minutes into vast fields of research, wonderful work of over years and experiences. Thank you very much and I hand back to the host, to Daniel.
Well, thank you very much, Alexandra, and, and for chairing this fabulous panel to, to, to all the panelists. And of course, great engagement and questions from the audience. So really, really fascinating. Thank you to Francesca Rafferty as well and Eva King from the Trinity Longworm Hub for all the logistical support behind the scenes without whom this would not have been possible. And uh, last but not least, hope to see you all again at another Trinity Longworm Hub event in the not too distant future. Good night and stay safe, everyone. And having a glass of wine together or with something else. <laughs> the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.